Welcome to our Lead to Succeed podcast, where we share leadership and business growth insights, both from our own experiences and that of our guests. We're the hosts. I'm Rebecca Jenkins, founder of Argen, helping companies to grow by finding, gaining and growing the best clients. And I'm Callum, sharing my perspectives from both being an entrepreneur and working in a variety of different companies. Whether you lead a team or a business, you'll find practical tips, inspirational insights and ideas as we discuss a wide range of leadership topics. So with that, here's today's episode. Welcome everyone. It's great to have Jake Jacobs with us today. Jake is from the States. I can't remember which state you're in. Jake. Ah, Ohio, in the Midwest. Oh, oh, you're from Ohio. Fantastic. So thank you for joining us. Now, Jake is the founder of Jake Jacobs Consulting. He has a book. It's all about leveraging change. And he, we're going to talk today very much about leading change and tough decisions. We, we've had a pre-discussion and uh, we thought that would be a really interesting topic um, for, for you all, our listeners. So um, Jake talks about leveraging change, creating better, faster, and easier change. And by focusing on what are the smart actions that will make the biggest difference. So a big welcome to you, Jake. And if you'd like to do a very kind of brief introduction, that would also be very welcome. Sure. Um, thank you, first off, for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate that. And um, my clients, the people that I work with, um, are frustrated uh, with change in, in one of three ways. One, um, they're frustrated that it's too hard, uh, it's too long, and too often ineffective, that they don't accomplish the results that they want. So um, if one of those fits for you, this will be a really engaging conversation. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners will experience that in some way, shape or form. Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Jake. Thanks very much for, uh, for joining. Um, so I'd love to like kick in, into like this first sort of question. Obviously, we've just spoken a little bit about change. Of, of course, as everyone knows, over the past like, well, close to two years now, we've had like, you know, a massive amount of change in you know, the way a lot of people do business and lead teams and kind of work remotely and so on. Um, so I guess like tying that into our first question, what would you say has been like the best example of leadership that you've seen either um, with your clients or sort of other people that you look up to in regards to leadership over the course of like the past 18 months or so? Um, I think it's one of my clients. He uh, uh, leads a retail operation um, in the UK and uh, throughout Europe and what uh, give him a name of Paul. And what what Paul has done is a really good job of uh, the first lever I talk about in the book. So with all of the change going on, and, and uh, there's been plenty um, in sort of every dimension of work. So what Paul has done is while people are overwhelmed with the amount of change, this first lever deals with that and it is about paying attention to continuity. So what Paul has done a really good job of, I think, is making sure that people remember the things that are not changing during this period of time, that you can get caught up with the amount of change and, and the stress that goes along with that and the anxiety that goes along with it and performance suffers for it and, and just people's mental state 
has been really difficult. And what Paul's done a good job of is reminding people of the successes they've had in the past, why they've had these successes, and how they can take, even amidst all the change that's going on, and build those into and remember them in their daily work. And I think that paying attention to continuity is one of the best ways to uh, manage a lot of change. Could you give us an example, Jake, where he's actually done that? You know, just like a, a, an example that we could all relate to? Yeah, they had a change in roles um, during the midst of all this. I mean, they would have had that as part of a regular uh, operations as well. And their sales and marketing groups were having conflicts. And so what Paul did is, um, and, and his head of sales and his head of marketing, is they had a virtual session, which, which was different. Um, they'd have been in the same room, and I, I think it would have been easier for them. But what they talked about at the very beginning of the session was what they've done really well in the past, what is going to continue that they've done in terms of their relationship and what their expectations have been in the past that have been met. And this is very unusual, I think, in a business context because everybody wants to solve the problem. Everybody wants to know what the problem is. Um, they want to identify the root cause of the problem. And that's what they focus on. And I think that what Paul said and his sales and marketing had said is we want to remember what we're doing well, because you run the risk of dropping the ball on what you've done well all this time while you're trying to do something new. So this is a great application when you're looking at roles and responsibilities and making changes in them to start from the positive, to start from the place where you're gonna continue doing what's already worked. And my experience has been, it, it, it energizes people. Uh, it gives them greater confidence. They move forward more certain in the work that they've been doing and give themselves uh, firm ground to stand on as they take a leap into the unknown world of change. And they were already in the unknown world of change. So going back and sort of counting their wins before they started the game or playing the game of, of renegotiating these roles, I think really helped them a lot. And, uh, and I tip my hat to them for being wise enough to take that lever and really put it to work. I can see that how that could also work in your personal life as well because very often we keep striving to achieve our next goal or our next outcome but perhaps don't take time to reflect and look at how far we've come yeah and what what i would say about that there's a there's a story in the book of a, a, a leader and their direct report and how um they uh this direct report was on the way out they were getting along with the team it was a new hire and um we tried an experiment and this was with another one of the levers which was think and act as if the future were now and i said to this leader you know uh, could this person add value? And they said, well, yeah, that's why we hired them. And, uh, you know, it's going to be very costly to replace this person. And we're going to lose time in terms of building our team again. So I said, well, the experiment is to think and act as if this person were a valuable contributor to your team. How would you be treating them? What would you be telling them? What kind of information would you share with them? And they were like, but they're not. And I said, no, no, but we're going to use one of these levers and think and act as if they are. And 
we brought this person in to have a conversation about this. They were nervous because getting called into the boss's office, they thought this was the final straw and that they were going to end up being um, sacked, I think you would say, in, uh, in the UK. Mm -hmm. And we talked with them about this lever and said, we're going to do this experiment. So from that till the end of the day, just from lunch till the end of the day, they changed the relationship and sort of had to change it immediately to walk the talk of this lever. And over time, we checked in the next day, the next week, the next month, and they radically changed the way that they interacted with each other. And the team started to pick up on this as well. So this whole notion of, can you bring it into your personal life? That was a one-on-one -on -one interaction. One of the podcasts that I've done said, this is the next chicken soup for the soul. And for those who are unfamiliar with this, this is an entire series of books that Jack Canfield started on personal development, personal growth. And uh, they said, look, if you've used this in the workplace one-on-one, -on -one, why couldn't I use this with my teenage child that I'm having trouble with and pull these levers out and actually improve that relationship? And I said to them, well, Chicken Soup for the Leveraged Soul has not been written yet, but it will go on the list of to-dos for me. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I guess what I would like to do in terms of uh, like asking like what, what would like maybe like three sort of key takeaways or three traits that like our listeners could maybe take away and implement into their own business and their own personal lives. You kind of touched on one a little bit earlier on about kind of like focusing on the positive things or like looking at where you come from and where you want to, to go. What would you say with like maybe two or three other key kind of takeaways that people could use that um, could help make them implement sort of change effectively within their team, within their organization or their business? Yeah, I, I, I think three. I'm going to choose three. The first one um, is vision of some type. And so if, if you don't have a clear picture of where you want to go, it's going to be, as I said, very difficult to get there. And so as clear a picture as you can have, and I'm talking about like a three-dimensional picture, you, you, you can even hear what people are saying in conversations with each other. You can watch their behavior and see in very concrete terms what that future looks like. So it's not like it's better. It's like I'm having conversations about the sales figures uh, two weeks before they're due so that we don't get into a conversation at the end of the month and we say, well, what happened with those sales figures? And so I can have a conversation with you and also how can I help you achieve that vision, right? The second is if I know where I'm going, then collaboration is another piece of it. And by collaboration, I mean that that vision can't be the leaders alone, that they need to engage people in their organization that will be impacted by that future and have shared conversations and build a shared picture of what that future looks like. So now we've got two pieces of the puzzle. One of them is what that future looks like. And the second is that we're building it collaboratively. Um, the third one is, um, is, you know, you hear it over and over again. You see it less so, which is walk the talk. So having a leader demonstrate their own commitment to this change and changing their own behavior, their own expectations, what people receive from them, the way that they talk, the way that they act, all of these things. I say that um, leaders uh, have a spotlight on them, whether they believe that to be true or not, or, or even whether they notice 
that that's true or not. They are always walking around with the spotlight on them. So having people aware that their leader is behaving differently sends a very strong message that this is being taken seriously. And having the leader ask their people for help, that being vulnerable and being able to say, this is new behavior for me. Can you let me know when I'm doing a good job with it? And can you let me know when I'm falling short? Because that gives everybody in the organization permission to ask that question and to make those comments. And so I think it's not just walking the talk in the traditional sense of, you know, doing what we say we're going to do around this change, but it's also asking for the support of people in the organization to be able to help them do that successfully because good leadership has good followership. And very few people pay attention to this thing called followership, but you can tell a good leader because they have followers. One of the favorite signs I saw in a client once was uh, something on the wall and it said, how many of them were there? Were there? Which way were they going? How fast were they moving? I must find them, I'm their leader. And so this is a picture of not having followership. So having people that believe in you, that trust you, that, that wanna follow the directions that you're setting and, and the work that you're doing is to me the best example of whether in fact you, you have good leadership. You might like this, I heard it the other day, Jake, somebody said a CEO is not a chief executive officer. They are a chief example officer. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. And, and, you know, whether in fact they call themselves that or not, it is what they are. It is. Uh, that spotlight is on them. And so, you know, how they behave, it, it's remarkable how one person can have impact on an entire organization. But when that CEO starts to change behavior and starts to behave the way they want others to be behaving, um, really amazing things can happen in a very short window of time. Yeah, and when we, when we had our initial discussion um, Jake, we talked about facing into really tough decisions and you gave an example of a tough decision that you had had to make and it'd be good to, to share that with our listeners and what you learned from those from making tough decisions that would help listeners who also are maybe potentially facing tough, tough decision making. Sure. So I'm going to ask for a little bit of help because I feel like I've made a lot of tough decisions okay. in my life. So give me a key word here yeah. to remind me of this particular story. This was when you were going to win potential for winning some new business and it just didn't feel like a, a good fit and you right. had to live with your values and you had that kind of dilemma of, well, this could be a really nice piece of work for me. Yeah, uh, yeah the values don't resonate. Yeah, and, th and this, see, I, I think for certainly this is true for consultants, but th this is true for any organization as well, because who we do business with has a lot to do with what we believe. And um, if, if you believe that getting the next sale is the most important thing, then you end up working with anybody, um, whether you share their values or they don't. And in this particular situation, I was meeting with the CEO and we were talking about what the work would be. And um, I, what I said, th this person said to me, well, I want people to feel as if they're involved. 
and I, you know, I pay attention to language. And I said to this leader, do you want them to feel involved or do you actually want them to be involved? And the CEO looked back at me and he said, well, what's the difference? And I thought, hmm, if this person doesn't know the difference between somebody feeling as if they were involved and somebody actually being involved, we need to have some more conversation. And as we talked about it, what became clear is <clears throat> that this leader really did want to control the organization, hold on to the reins, had um, fears more than courage to be able to let people start making some decisions for themselves and, and start leading in their own way in the organization. So as I had this conversation, you know, I, I asked point blank, you know, how much of this are you going to let go of? Because in my field, I, I believe that people can grow and develop and learn and, and change. And so if people are interested in doing that, I take them on as clients because, you know, the potential is always there. And if the intention is there, then that makes good sense. But at some point, you start shaving away enough of your own beliefs and values to make something work that you look up one day and you say, you know, this isn't who I am this isn't the kind of work I want to be doing. And so as you try and, you know, make it work, if you have to make it work, then I ask whether it should work. And so in this case, I had to walk away from a, a very large project that would have um, been a couple years worth of work. And it would have been really interesting work had that leader authentically be willing to be vulnerable and to let go of some of the control in the organization. And, you know, I mean, to his credit, he was honest with me. So I appreciated that because it saved us both a lot of time and a lot of headaches. But when he told me, I said, you know, there are better people out there for you to be working with than me, because I actually want people to be involved. I don't just want to have the, um, you know, the, the experience of them as if, they felt that they were involved. And, and I think that this is true, you know, it, when you're in sales in any organization, you need to look at the values of the people that you're doing business with. And, and when they fit, you have success. When they don't, you are just asking for trouble. And whether you experience it immediately or it takes a while for that to show up, you're going to hit that you know, rock in the road. And, you know, rather than wishing that you had made a different decision, make the different decision up front and, and move on. There's plenty of clients, there's plenty of work, and there are plenty of people who want to work the way that you want to work. I think that's part of it, isn't it? It's, you know, it sounds like the art of sort of like qualifying out at, at the early stage when, you know, your morals and your values don't, don't quite align. And I'm sure, I'm sure as time moves forward, you'll find the client that, that does fit those values. And I think that's part of sort of strong leadership, isn't it? Having those values and, and sticking to them when, when the time is right to, to do so. And thanks for, thanks for sharing the story, Jake. Um, I guess they're looking a bit further afield. Um, I'd be really interested to hear from, from your side of things. Do you have any sort of like particular leaders or people that you feel have, like, have led change in like a really inspirational way that you look up to and you kind of um, take inspiration from them? Well, um, one, I'm actually going to go back a long ways. Uh, this was a quote that um, 
was made by Thomas Jefferson in 1820, who was one of the founders of the states. And less important that he was one of the founders of the states than, than what he said, because I think that this has a lot to do with leadership and what he chose to say um, and do. And so the quote, which I, I know by heart, right, which is, if we find the people of the society not informed enough to exercise their discretion in a wholesome way, our job is to inform it, not to take it away. So what Jefferson was saying is, is if people aren't smart enough to make good decisions, then don't take those decisions away from them, but inform their discretion, help them learn what they need to know in order to make good decisions. And so that notion, I, I mean, in one sense, I think I wake up in the morning and my job is to inform discretion or make sure that it happens. Because I think everybody in an organization has important decisions to make. And if leaders take it upon themselves to educate people, they'll be much smarter. I had a client that was involved in a merger and acquisition and there were very complex financial instruments as part of this. They had, um, uh, uh, floating uh, interest rates and convertible bonds and all kinds of things to make this work. And th the key was the faster they could make this move and integrate these companies and get back to doing business with success, the better it would be. But, you know, telling people work faster or make this happen sooner, they don't understand why. So what we conducted were mini MBA classes. So we conducted classes in finance for everybody in the organization. There are 37,000 people in this organization. It would have been easier to just say, do it. Why? Because I said so. Okay, well, that, that didn't work very well when we were raising children, and it doesn't work very well when we're leading organizations. So we did these MBA courses, and people understood the underlying reasons for why and how much money could be saved and what could happen to their bonuses if they made this transition faster rather than slower, because they'd be paying these bonds off sooner and all of that detail. But that notion of informing discretion for me is one that um, has stuck with me and that quote has stuck with me ever since I saw it years ago. Um, I also think that, um, there's, there's everyday leaders. I, uh, the second story I want to tell <clears throat> isn't somebody famous. It isn't, um, you know, somebody from parliament or, or government, or I could tell you plenty about sports coaches and, you know, these people who are more well-known. What I want to do is tell you the story of a guy named Joe. And Joe worked in um, a telecommunications company that I was consulting to. And we had a planning team that was designing the change effort, which they, one of the other levers is design it yourself so that you aren't stuck with somebody else's process, you design your own. So we were planning this change process and Joe, um, who laid line out for the telecommunications company, it wasn't an executive position, stood with one foot in the doorway and one foot out of the doorway during our planning meeting, the very first one. So I, I thought, I mean, this is really ironic, right? This is a guy who's got one foot in the process and one foot out. If you want to talk about being on the fence, he literally was on the fence. And as we worked in the morning, 
he just stood there and we said, Joe, do you want to join the meeting? And, you know, he said no. And so we respected his decision and he stood in the doorway. And at lunch, he came and sat down next to me. And I said, um, how's the morning going? Because I, I was curious. I never had anybody standing half in a meeting and half out of a meeting. And it, it was a genuine question. And he said, it went really well for me. I said, oh, well, why is that? And he said, well, in this organization in the past, when they've rolled out certain new programs, they've really rolled over the people in the organization with these new programs. These weren't invitations to join a new way of doing business. This was a decree that we had to follow. He said, now, what you're talking about this morning and designing this ourselves and getting clear on our own purpose and outcomes. and there are members of the executive team in this group. So it's not like they're not represented, but they're a couple of the voices in this 20 person team. He said, I'm gonna sit at the table this afternoon because this is different. This feels like we really are rolling our sleeves up and getting involved in some of the very important decisions in this change effort. And that's different for me. And Joe, who was a cynic early on, and this is true a lot of times for me, became a zealot. And he actually organized a group of champions, change champions in the organization, made videos to recruit people to it, um, had meetings where they would talk about ways that they could further support the change effort. So as I said, I, I think that this is the kind of leadership that successful change requires. It's not going to be the person making the speech or writing the article in the newspaper or writing a book about what change means and, and how to lead it. It's the Joes of the world that really make it happen. And so for me, that was a, a good example of somebody just like you or me being able to lead change work in a, in a authentic way that makes a difference for the business on a daily basis. And that's such a fantastic story. And obviously he was a big influencer in that project being successful. So great that he had the option to be involved or not, rather than a diktat from high up to say, you've got to go to it. In a minute, we're going to, I'd love to chat about the role of middle management in all of this, because sometimes I've seen examples where middle management can be a real block to making change happen. So I'd like to explore that. And also what you think are some of the big, um, the big hindrances that get in the way of leading change. You talk about it being faster, quicker, easier. So how do you make that happen? But just before we go into that, I would just like to make an offer to um, our listeners. If you are growing a business and you would, you're, maybe you've got some frustrations and you would like to have a bit of a clearer plan or a strategy session with a fresh perspective, then I am offering that um, a free session, um, a full hour. Just go to rgen.online and book your slot and we will arrange a time to have a chat. But now more importantly, back, back to you, Jake. Thank you for allowing me that. And yeah, let's talk about middle management and blocks to leading change. How do we get there faster, quicker? Yeah, so um, I believe middle management gets a bad name. I think that people who are supposed experts in change 
um, talk about middle management as a problem. Um, usually what it sounds like is um, information comes down from the top uh, about the direction and it comes up from the bottom about what the daily work is really like. And, and then it gets stuck in the middle. So this is this is the common refrain and, and people, you know, have written books and made livings off of disparaging middle management. I, I actually, I don't believe that. And I also don't believe that's helpful. So middle managers in a lot of ways um, are, are seen to be troublemakers in change efforts. Um, they are, um, in fact, my first mentor used to say that executives call them the bowel blockage of change efforts for a graphic illustration here. And um, I have a different view of troublemakers as a whole and middle managers in particular, which is uh, troublemaking is in the eye of the beholder. So if I have you be a troublemaker, you tend to behave in ways that cause me trouble. If I see you and I hold you as being a valuable member, a critical member of the team, it's amazing how different your behavior ends up being. Now, you have not changed at all. The only thing that's changed is my perspective on you. And that means I treat you differently and you behave differently. So middle managers who, who've taken the rap for years around why change works and why change doesn't, you know, if you see them as a critical component of your change work, you will engage them in critical decisions. You will gather information from them when it's time to build a common database about strategic decisions. So as I reach out to my middle managers as teammates, not as blockages or people getting in the way of progress, but as people who are critical players in moving us forward. And I ask them, right, again, this collaboration thing shows up. I ask them, how can I best support you in doing the work that's required for this change effort to succeed? So rather than starting with expectations that they're going to be the information channel and why aren't they telling each other, uh, people above and below them, what, what needs to be done and what the information is. No, no. Start by asking, how can I be helpful? And when you start with that question, you'll be amazed at the long list of things they, they will creatively come up with that you can help them help you. And I think that, you know, making those requests and making it an open door, people talk about an open door policy, but it's not really open, you know, for the middle manager, it's like, well, no, you go do your job and make sure you, you do it well, or this change effort is going to fail. Have it be something that you go out to them on their turf and you say, I'd like to make an invitation. I'd like to change the conversation we're having with you so that you have more power and authority in this. And so tell me, how can I do things for you that are going to better serve you so you can better serve me? And I, I think that's a healthier way and a more productive way to engage with people in the middle than what typically gets done. I love that as a philosophy. And that's all, you know, you're here to serve them to be the best that they can be. And uh, you know, I think 
found this just such a great approach and that's really in essence what I feel leadership really is about. Yeah, I, I think the, the more that you can do that, um, the more you will learn about your organization and what's needed. And, you know, leaders are often in a position to do something about it. So they, you know, don't have to uh, uh, ask somebody else's permission to make a change. They're in a position to make that change themselves. And so the speed at which these changes can be made, you know, you can snap your finger and leaders can often make things happen that people in the middle never would be able to. So as soon as you hear something, one of the other things about leverage change, and we, we have a, a group consultation program that I designed. So this is um, leaders of change work in organizations. And so we get them in groups, um, either within the same organization or with their teams. And we say, what is it that you need to be successful? And they have conversations with each other because they're able to build that database, build that understanding amongst themselves, and then go into the organization connected and clear. Because a lot of times change efforts happen in an organization and, and people working on them don't even know that there's another change effort that somebody else is working on. And, you know, it's like you end up working at cross purposes and you don't even find out until you bump up against each other and you have a problem. So these group consultation sessions bring people together to talk about all of the changes that are happening in the organization. And then based on that, what can we do collectively to help each other and help ourselves be more effective? Is that group consultation would be that one of your three top things to make? to leverage change faster, quicker, and easier? Yeah, I think the best way to think about it is that that is um, a vehicle by which we can do it. It's a, it's a method and an opportunity to do it. I, I wanna introduce um, one of these levers that I think helps with faster, easier, and better. And, and all of these are about leverage. So they're about getting more done with fewer hassles, headaches, and problems, and often with fewer resources, because they all deal with paradigm changes. They're not things that you have to go dip into your pocket and pay more for or find more people to do it. They're different ways of seeing the work that you need to do anyway. So one of the things that organizations suffer from when it comes to change is called the what's in it for me problem. Right. In fact, I've had clients who love acronyms and so they call it with them, which is what's in it for me if you make an acronym out of it. And so people see this as a selfish um, interest. You know, it's like, well, wait a minute, before I sign up to this, what am I going to get out of it? You know, what's my payoff? And um, and they see this as a problem. And, you know, I have a different perspective. I, I think it's a healthy interest that human beings have for what is in it for them. And, and frankly, I would say if there's nothing in it for somebody, they shouldn't do it. But the problem that most people have with this is that they try and deal with it at the individual level. They try to get into conversations to say, well, let me tell you, here's the payoff or here's the payoff or you know, you're gonna get this out of it. And they deal with it for individuals. I mean, the other way it gets dealt with is 
you know, to heck with you and your needs. We're going to do this anyway. And I don't really care what's in it for you. So, you know, unfortunately that gets used too, but a leverage change approach says you need to develop a future people want to call their own. Now, this is an entirely different way to deal with this because rather than looking at the individual and the problem, what we're looking at is the collective and the solution. So if I develop a future that I want to call my own and I'm part of developing that future, then what happens is what's in it for me disappears. What, what I want is this future that's compelling and exciting and empowering. And so I'm going to go towards that future instead of away from this what's in it for me. So I'm not in a negotiation anymore about what am I getting out of this and is it enough for me to participate? I actually see an exciting future that I want to claim for myself. And it, once I get into that place where I want to claim a future, I'm not worried about what's in it for me anymore. I'm, I'm excited about creating that future and I'm energized by it. So this is another one of these um, levers, these eight levers that are based on paradigm shifts. And so, you know, here's a problem. Each of them deals with one problem and change. And here's a solution or a way to address it that is, I think, much more productive and much faster because as soon as you get that picture of the future, people are gonna be working really hard to make that happen faster, easier, and better because everybody's rowing in the same direction. They've got the same picture. They wanna make it happen. So they'll use their own ingenuity about ways to get there that you alone would never come up with. I really love the example of you know, it being a collaborative situation. And I think many areas where it's been successful for me and my business is where it's been a real collaboration. What can you share an example with us as we as we begin to wrap up, Jake, where you've got a great example where this where you've worked with a company or where change has happened and it's been hugely, hugely successful. And what were the key learnings from that? Right. So um, I'm going to tell a story that some people will answer and start by saying, well, what have you done lately? Right. Because this story is a story from 1994. And the story was, I think, unfortunately, very appropriate right now, because in New York City in the States, there was a pending pandemic. And it happened to be around tuberculosis. And tuberculosis was a disease and still is of the poor and indigent populations. So people would move from the shelter system to the public health care system, um, to the streets, uh, to um, going into the social services system. And all of these led to uh, disconnects and getting their medication. So the key to beating a disease is getting consistent treatment. And when you get inconsistent treatment, you get multiple drug resistant strains of the virus. So with this TB, it was growing and growing. And with a, 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 a mobile population, it could easily go around the world. So while a lot of people didn't hear about this is a very critical situation that they had in New York City. So we pulled together five agencies 
those five ones that I was talking about and had a blueprint for TB control. So they agreed how they were gonna deal with it, even down to the protocols of how they were gonna make sure that people got their shots and got their treatment so that you didn't get these multiple drug resistant strains. Because once you get these, they're very difficult to, um, to deal with. And I learned this from epidemiologists who I now know study diseases. And I can say that word very quickly because uh, they were my partners in this project. But those five city agencies collaborated together and had a remarkable result. So since 1994, there's been an 85% year over year decline of tuberculosis in New York City. Last year, they had the lowest reported number of cases of tuberculosis in the city of New York since they started counting in 1897. So, you know, one of the things for me about success is it has to have lasting impact. If you show me success over three to five years, I think that's terrific. But over 10 to 20 years, what kind of staying power have you had in what you've accomplished. So this story in New York is one of the ones I'm proudest of in my entire career, not just because um, I think the impact of it and the potential impact of it globally was so large, but also the results have stuck over time and those agreements that they've made, they're still operating on them from these five city agencies from 1994. So that's the story, go ahead. I think that's really phenomenal. And a great achievement because so often we can hear in businesses, oh gosh, not another change program. We didn't, we didn't finish the last one. Right, right. And in fact, a lot of times I've had clients say, not only haven't we finished the last one, but the last one isn't even relevant anymore. Okay. That, you know, the changes that we said we were going to make, competition, technology, and industry trends, all these things have shifted since we started our change effort. So what we're trying to accomplish isn't going to lead to success now anyway, which is, you know, it's almost a cartoon, but the sad part is that it is true. I mean, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and knowledge on leading change. And we would like to just say to you now, what would you like to share? Anything you would like to, to share with our listeners about what you're doing or projects or anything? Sure. Um, one thing that I have is an invitation for your listeners. And um, this is because I, I have confidence in this approach. I've seen it work in all kinds of organizations on all kinds of change efforts with individuals, teams, organizations. I mean, it, it, it really has surprised me in a number of cases by the success it's had. So I invite people to come to my website, which is jakejacobsconsulting.com. And on there, there is a free ebook. And in that ebook, it's called 27 Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results Immediately. And so, what this does is it gives three or four ideas that you can take, read, and go implement immediately and make a difference in change work that you're doing. So, just for your listeners, one example of this you often have resistors of change. Right. If we ask your listeners to raise their hand, if they've ever experienced somebody resisting change, everybody's hand would be in the air. And so one of the ideas, this is a simple one, but I think profound, is to find a resistor, right? find a troublemaker and ask them 
what is it about this change that you're resisting? I mean, I, I know it doesn't look like you're on board with this and there's a reason for that, you know, what is it? And then work with that person collaboratively to address that issue. And that makes a difference immediately. You don't have to go invest in more people or put more money into the budget for the change effort. This is a simple conversation that you can go have with somebody. And it is amazing when you actually validate somebody's concerns and when you work with them to address those concerns and you really understand them, you now have a new teammate. And so I, you know, would love for people to come get that ebook. And then after you see the ebook, when you go ahead and get the book, the book's going to have a lot more details. There's 44 stories in the book of real people using these levers in real ways on real issues. And so if you like what you see in the book, there's a companion program that I wrote to the book to actually take you through five days, a half an hour a day. It's not a heavy lift but it will take you deeper into the book and the other programs we've designed are all about making leverage change work for you and at the end of the day i think that's the best gift that we can give people is to take a proven process and make it widely available to people which goes back to the very reason i wrote the book in the first place well, you have provided stacks of value on this podcast, Jake. Thank you very much. Our listeners have the offer that you've made. They have the offer of um, a free consulting session. So we're always adding value. It's what we do. And Jake, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us, your experience with us. And your book is called Leverage Change, but they can go to your website and uh, get the ebook. So thank you very much indeed. It's been fantastic to have you on our podcast. Well, thank you as well. And, and, uh, and thank you for having the podcast. I know your listeners benefit a lot from hopefully from this session, um, but all of them that you hold. And, uh, and I know these don't happen on their own. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed it, we welcome a review. And if you have any questions and like to get in touch with us, you can do that at the rgen, rjen.co.uk website.